This is uh, State Representative Dontavious Gerald. It's really excited to be on the one, the only, the best podcast <laughs> <laughs> as we discuss health policy issues, but really uh, talk about how do we build a better Ohio for all of us. And so I'm excited to be on and excited for you all to hear the podcast coming to you soon. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner. And that was Representative Dontavius Geralds, who, as you may have ascertained, is our guest on today's episode. In my conversation with Rep. Geralds, we talk about his work to free Ohio's water systems of lead, the importance of updating health-related language in the Ohio Revised Code, the state of mental health services, supports, and stigma in Ohio, and more. You know, I just want to add, Rep. Geralds is someone I have tremendous respect for. I've wanted to have him on the show for a long time now, so I'm really excited that we could finally make that happen. As you'll hear, he's also just a delightful human being who cares a lot about the communities he represents and the state as a whole. I thought it was a great conversation that really captures some of the critical crossroads we find ourselves at in Ohio. Before turning to our conversation, I want to let you know that we're doing a lot of updating and tweaking on the interwebs. So, so please take some time to check out prognosisohio.com to see what we've got cooking there, as well as our social media accounts. Make sure you're subscribed to the show, and please consider chipping in a few bucks, which you can do through our Patreon page to help us improve the show and expand our reach. If you aren't in a position to support the show, no problem at all. Just maybe consider giving us a few stars in your podcast app and tell a few friends about the show. It really helps. Okay, here's my conversation with Representative Dontavius Geralds. It's such an honor to have you here in the studio. I've been following your work from afar, but I actually get to sit and talk with you now. So yeah, great to be here. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, before we get into health policy and politics, and you and I, as we were walking in here, kind of joked like, oh, there's nothing to talk about, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on in the there's state. There's a lot happening. But I want to start with you. You know, mm -hmm. I think it's always good to give people a little bit of a personal touch to understand how you, as a person who's been doing this work, caring yeah. about this work, grew up in Ohio, you know, how your life has shaped the policy work you're doing mm. right now. And I know you've talked publicly about surviving lead poisoning as yes. a kid, mm -hmm. but I'm sure there's other things as well. Can you just a lot. <laughs> tell us about you a little bit, just so our listeners, you know, get the full picture. Yeah, well, first and foremost, I, I'm really, I really am excited to be here and thank you for inviting me. Uh, you know, as, as a young person growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, I uh, knew early on that my environment was not necessarily a sum of folks' individual decisions, but the system. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in the Huff neighborhood. And so, you know, when you walked out, uh, you know, you would see a number of things. Poverty, you would see individuals, unfortunately, addicted to substances. Uh, you would just see hopelessness. And uh, I always knew that whatever I did in my life, I, I had a good voice, right, as my mom would tell me. And I wanted to make sure that I spoke up for folks who didn't have the means to speak up for themselves. And so for me personally, like the work that I do in the state house literally is like, I am saving my aunties and my uncles and my cousins and my mother and my father, right? Because the people in which I know the policies that I push for, you know, I know that, that they will be impacted positively and they look like me, right? They come from where I came from. And so, you know, so much growing up in Cleveland, went to, you know, East Tech, went to Hiram College and and just learned how to navigate policy. And, and I really wanted to make sure that whatever I did it mattered, mm -hmm. right? It, mm -hmm. Because, you know, the work that I do in the state house literally is a difference between life and death for people. Yeah. 
And we, you know, a lot of folks just don't know what we do in the state house. And so I'm trying to bring the perspective of the state to the communities in which I imp- impact and to build policies that are going to literally save their life. It also occurs to me, so I've done some work on, um, on hospitals, and if you're living in Huff, you're also growing up right next to the Cleveland Clinic. You are, yes. Big, you know, multi-million, billion-dollar medical industry. Absolutely. And, and you, know, uh, you know, provides wonderful care to a lot of patients, but also is this kind of center of a paradox of mm-hmm. amazing healthcare professionals and then some of the worst health outcomes in the state right there. Right around the corner. Yeah. Right around the corner. I mean, literally, you have the greatest, what I would say, the greatest hospital in the world, that juxtapositioned in a community that uh, has severe and persistent poverty yeah. and, you know, don't have the adequate healthcare access to even go to the hospital, uh, let alone receive any services. And so the work that we do in the state house matters mm-hmm. because those individuals, they matter. Yeah. And so, and I think about that in my journey into the public service, um, because without them, I wouldn't be here literally. So. Now you're a leader in the state and promoting yeah. solutions, right? Yes, you're, one of the youngest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wonderful. Yeah. It, it just uh, it, so HB 587, right, laid the groundwork for yes. securing, uh, you know, a sizable amount of money, 150 million dollars right, in federal a funds, a little bit of funds, right, for, for lead poison <laughs> prevention. Yes, you know, 150 million obviously is a lot of money. It is. But I'm guessing it's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes oh, to the 100%. lead problem in Ohio. No, 100%. So how are we using this money? What's it going to do? And kind of give me a sense of the, the scale of how far does it get us with the issue? What, what's the yeah. scope of the problem in Ohio? Yeah, so there's there's a number of things that, you know, this $150 million that was passed with House Bill 45 would do. One, it would give funding to the Department of Development. Uh, and other departments to help with the uh, remediation and also the um, mitigation of lead out of homes. Now, it does not address lead in pipes. Mm. And that is something that I'm going back to the General Assembly, this GA, to uh, introduce legislation to address. Um, You know, we've had a backlog of individuals who, you know, fall within a certain income level, and they would normally get a some support related to mitigating lead in their homes, and particularly with children in them. And unfortunately, that program, every time they renewed, we renew the funding, you know, we have a backlog of individuals who need to get, uh, you know, this mediation out of, you know, to, to let out their homes. But yet, uh, for one reason or another, they simply can't get up to the list or the list is too long. Mm. And so this money is going to be used to help fund those types of programs, but also ensure that contractors, businesses have the funding and access available so that they can mediate uh, lead in, you know, in some of the old commercial sites that we know are still in existence across the state, right? You know, Cleveland is uh, kind of a hotbed, unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, where I'm from when it comes to this issue. But as I say, you know, Cleveland is not the only place, right? right? This is happening all across uh, the state where we are, we have old buildings and we redevelopment is happening, which is a great thing. Yeah. But unfortunately, if we don't address this issue, the environmental toll that it has on communities is is devastating. And the biggest issue of all, and I and I say this, kids can't be the canaries in the mines. Yeah. They can't be the ones that we when they have lead or test positive for lead, and and children begin to find themselves impacted by those um, by the illness. You know, we can't then say, oh well, there's lead in our communities. We have to be very proactive and preventative so that our kids can you know live their best life. 
Yeah, it strikes me that we, we talk about Flint. We have these places that yeah. got a lot of attention nationally, and that's wonderful. I mean, people need to talk about Flint. Right. But then, you know, we talk about Cleveland, and in Ohio, I feel like I worry sometimes that certain places mm -hmm. get the focus, and we forget that it's a systemic problem. It is. It I is. mean, maybe Absolutely. not fully systemic in every policy area, but a lot of them are. Do we even know where these, these service lines are in Ohio? My sense was that... Mm -hmm. I, I believe that we don't really even have an adequate mapping of them yet. Yeah. Is that part of this? Yeah, part of it is. Uh, and, and again, I, th I think, you know, this funding that we have, that we were able to allocate goes to specifically directed to homes. Um, now, I, I do want to thank Obama and his administration for the inf infrastructure dollars, mm -hmm. because that some of those funds did go and address lead lines. But obviously, as you know, you know, that's th that funding is not enough to address all lead lines in the state and so i think you know part so to your question directly part of those funds with the infrastructure dollars are to discover where there's lead in pipes so that we can get them um, actually uh, uh, removed and and redeveloped and then my hope is in a new ga we'll have additional funding especially as we navigate the budget to make sure that Whenever, wherever there's a lead pipe, we are removing them yeah. and actually replacing them appropriately because um, clean drinking water is a number one priority of mine. And 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 even though I did not uh, get lead poisoning from lead, uh, lead, lead pipes, I did get it from the homes. We know that the issue is 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 summative. Right. Like all of these issues play into whether or not a child gets exposed. And so we want to make sure that we do everything we can to address this issue for families. And you would think this would be an, a no brainer as concerns bipartisan support. Oh my support. goodness, it should be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm really proud, you know, my bill was bipartisan. Uh, Representative Patton and I introduced the legislation and and I know that this is something that of the governor, it's on the top of the mind for the governor, along with mental health. And yeah. so, you know, I'm proud to be someone who can share my story as a legislator about what's, why this is important and put a personalized story to the policy about what's possible and what we should be doing. And so I'm excited about the work, but you know, we got more work to do. To turn to another policy area of great importance. So reducing stigma and behavioral health, oh, man. including addiction. Yes. I know it's really important to you. You also spent some time at the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services in a previous life or yeah. a part of your <laughs> trajectory. I was interested in, you know, I, I noticed that you, you introduced this legislation with pro-recovery language on license plates. And yes. it, it made me think back to when I first started doing work on the opioid crisis. And I would have people telling me I, that they didn't even know that recovery was possible. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of taking this step and, and, and saying recovery is beautiful. Like it it's is. a thing to, it's not only possible, but it's, it's something to celebrate. Absolutely. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about... Um, you know, what, what that's about and also your sense of how much progress have we made? It's mm. my sense that this is one of those areas where we've made some progress, but like the lead issue, like anti-racism, like, yeah. I mean, like so many issues, the, the, the more you get into the policy work, the more you start to realize how deep it goes. Absolutely. So how are you feeling about where, where we are and also what the revenue raised from that, that mm -hmm. license plate venture could actually do? I'm guessing that's another scratch the surface sort it of is. thing. Yeah. But um, where where are you with the issue? Yeah, so so I, I guess I'll say this to begin. You know, mental health and addiction touches every facet of life, mm -hmm. and you know, one of the things that I try to do as a legislator is think about with my previous experience in the behavioral health field is what can we do to make sure that recovery is celebrated, but also the individual stories that I've heard across my time growing up in this in this field 
are are elevated and they inform policy. Mm-hmm. And so recovery is beautiful really was kind of a, uh, a, a term that was created when I was working with the Ohio Association of County Behavioral Health Authorities that represented all the Adam H boards, so the alcohol, drug, drug addiction, mental health boards. And we were moving to this system called Recovery Oriented Systems of Care. And it's a framework that really puts recovery in the forefront of policy. And we wanted to create something that was celebratory, but that also um, really sh- shined a light on the individual experience. And thus, Recovery is Beautiful was born. And and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, knowing what I know and and, and the journeys I've, I've heard from people as they've navigated their recovery, you know, I, I, I shout Recovery is Beautiful from the rooftop because the the individuals that are in recovery they literally are the ones at our starbucks they're the ones at policy in, in in rooms where policies policies are being created they are our business owners our small business owners there are folks who are really using their voice to be impactful in the world and the community around them yeah. and if we, you said earlier addressing stigma this is not a, this is a chronic disease, yeah. right? So much of the conversations that we've had to unpack is people think this is a failure of the person and it's not, right? Just like diabetes and cancer are not failures of an individual, neither is substance use or addiction uh, and, or, um, or mental health. And so what we wanted to do is really shine a light, but also to your point about raising funds, you know, the money's going to, you know, national and amazing organizations like NAMI Ohio, Mm-hmm. Right. Like the peer recovery organization. Right. Which pro Ohio, which works on building up peers in the addiction space. Um, you know, individuals and organizations that are dedicated to making sure that, you know, we don't let this die, that mm-hmm. that the work of those in recovery and their voices are valued should be elevated and empowered and ultimately is celebrated. And so this has been personal for me, um, you know, on a number of fronts, including my House Bill 21, which was signed into law that, you know, removed derogatory language out of our high revised code, right? Words that we know were systematically offensive to people in mental health and addiction. And so as we address the code, which is, I'm glad, I'm glad we are able to do in in the last uh, General Assembly, also about making sure that we create the pipeline for the future and we elevate recovery so everyone understands what it means. Yeah, and also in disability is my understanding. Absolutely, yes. Development disabilities, absolutely. And I want to come to that in a minute. I I do want to just come back to one thing you said when you talk about stories, you know, I mean, because trust me, I have a health policy-oriented podcast here. You've got to be careful how you talk about this stuff or people just fall asleep, Mm -hmm. even really important stuff, right? right? So the stories are important. Um, The stories with our, you know, let's say, last 10 years of addiction in this mm-hmm. state, some of the most important ones to me seem to be the ones about supposedly untouchable, affluent folks, mm-hmm. right? This idea that is sort of like, oh, this is happening everywhere. And that, that was mm-hmm. shocking to some people. Yeah, I know a lot of other of families who had to kind of go through a journey of being able to talk about this Absolutely. for the first time. So it's breaking down barriers. And then also sometimes you get some very high powered people who have been touched by it and for mm-hmm. the first time gained some newfound empathy yep. and that's very helpful, mm-hmm. right? So stories can be transformative because it also does that work of breaking the stigma. Absolutely. I've, I've been in testimony um, in committees where individuals are individual recovery come to the state house and they would just share a small facet 
of the journey that they had to take to get into recovery. And it was emotional, mm-hmm. groundbreaking. And it changes the, the tenor of the room because folks don't, I mean, unless you have that lived experience, you truly don't know what individuals go through to, to reach recovery. And some individuals had had to fall multiple times and get back up, dust themselves off and keep going mm-hmm. to try again. Uh, some were on the brink of death, unfortunately. And out of that despair came hope for them, right? And so now they're trying to find space where no one has to go through the same path that they went through. And so I take those voices and those, those stories and then I use it to inform policy. Yeah. Because sometimes the story in itself is because policy wasn't there to catch them, right? Their story and what happened to them is because we did not look at the system in totality yeah. to say, okay, what can we do different so that that, that person who was going through the woes of addiction you know, and couldn't find a bed, because we know that's happening in, in Ohio, mm-hmm. right? How do we move, how do we do things different so that that bed is available when they need it, right? Or that 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 clinical support is necessary, is there when they need it, right? Or at housing is there when they need it. And so being thoughtful about how do we take their stories and make policy and decisions that ultimately, as I said in the beginning, that save lives. That's what we're destined to do in this work. And that's what I'm committed to do as a legislator. So I want to come back to the non-derogatory language. Yes. Right. And think Mm. about this as as I was thinking about, you know, this work that you're doing with it. I think one of the greatest disservices in this country was the idea of something like political correctness Mm -hmm. or wokeness. Yes. Because at base learning to talk in a respectful way is a way to just be respectful, yeah. right? It's a way to be inclusive. It's and it breaks down barriers. Some people look at the idea of changing language and say, "Oh, come on, mm-hmm. come on!" Like you know. Yeah. But actually, you know, going back through the Ohio Revised Code, making sure that we are developing the correct language opens those doors to having those conversations. Absolutely, and bringing more people in. It's not just about the language. Yeah. So I, I will tell you when I first. So it's about over thirty terms. Over thirty terms were changed in Ohio Revised Code. Over. About about a thousand pages worth of changes, which is, you know, it's the, in fact, because we were doing some research on this, it's the most comprehensive change we've made to Ohio Revised Code in terms of terminology since the beginning of the Ohio Revised Code, <laughs> right? And so, I, I, you know, this is history and groundbreaking for me on a number of levels. Do you know what year that was, by the way? Well, I don't know. I'm I, gotta, I can't remember. Yeah. I can't remember the the, the year. It's uh, fine. It's fine. I'm just getting a sense of how bad this is. I mean, yeah. when you go back, I mean, th- I mean, some of the words are so archaic that you'll be like, "Why was this? Mm-hmm. Th- what? One, did we ever use this in our normal day to day colloquial? Like, mm-hmm. like somebody said that actually out their mouth. So it, it was it's, it was strange. Some of the words that we were we we changed when I first introduced this bill. That was one of the first critiques I received was, is this the starting point of us, you know, changing he and him and, and she and hers in, in, in Ohio Rise Code? I was oh, like, a slippery slope here. Yeah. Huh? yeah. I, was, I was like, what? Like, well, like none of the terminology that we introduced in Bill had anything to do with addressing gender terminology, though that is something that could be addressed down the line, right? Also a good idea. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but the reality is for us, what we wanted, and, and I had to realign my colleague to say, listen, at the end of the day, you know these terms are bad. If you walk, walk down the street, you start saying these terms out loud, you probably get punched, mm-hmm. right? And so if you know that deep in your heart that these are terms we should change, 
this bill is the right decision and the right direction. And so, and I was, I had to talk to a couple of, of my Republican colleagues about this, uh, some of these term, terms, because they wanted to, you know, what happened, unfortunately, was they started to nitpick on one term versus the other to try to say, well, they're all bad. I was like, no, you know, you may have concerns about one term, but that doesn't make this entire bill and what we're attempting to do in this legislation the wrong direction. We mm -hmm. know this is the right direction. Look at the 30 plus organizations that we were able to bring together to say this is this is something we, that we need to do for the state. And so to your to your question, I mean, yeah, we, we experienced some backlash. I think the beautiful thing that happened was the testimonies that we received from the organizations and the partners you know, talking about what is it like to stand in front of a, uh, a front of a judge and the judge have to say some of these terms out loud mm -hmm. and put it in the record. Right. Like when you start really thinking about the actual implementation of some of these stigmatizing, like some of this language, you were like, well, wow, this is I didn't even think about it. And so myth busting was one one of the things that we were, you know, strategic around just to make sure folks understood what it, did it mean to the day in the life of a person with developmental disabilities to hear these terms that they themselves don't know, know don't use, yeah. or a person with substance use disorder no longer subscribes by, or or is offended when people say it to them. And so it was it was really an interesting journey to say the least, because we had to take multiple routes to 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 win some of my colleagues over to say, look, this is the right thing for Ohio. And to not do this, your constituents in your district are going to be impacted. Right. And it, it strikes me, I mean, you, you started um, by noting that you are one of the youngest of the bunch. Are you the youngest legislator? No, mm -hmm. you're not the youngest. That's right. In, in leadership. Yeah, in leadership you are. Yeah. yeah. So there is this kind of piece of like, you know, part of being attentive to what's yeah. going on in our state means being up to date with things. And right. so, you know, it, it's an important service. I mean, we're obviously going to have to do this from time to time. And right. it should be something we do from time to time. It should be. It's, there's a whole discussion around it, but at base, what you're trying to teach people is respect. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and respect and dignity are not, they're, they're, they're important in and of themselves, right. but also from the perspective of, you know, a healthier state, they open up doors to allow us to get at root problems too. Mm -hmm. that's, that's true. Right? I mean, you, everything you say was, um, was beautiful, beautifully said. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have mailed us and emailed us and called our office saying, thank you. Yeah. My son who has autism is a person with autism feels like the state sees him mm -hmm. and cares about him. And I was like, that's, I mean, if I do nothing else in a legislature, to be quite frank with you, this is my like jewel, right? Because I've always wanted to create an environment where people felt they had dignity, right? Cause even me growing up in Cleveland, um, just what I experienced and having to navigate poverty, right? It was about the dignity of work, the dignity of expression, the dignity of understanding that there is a, there's a community that embraces you as you are, right? And that's the beauty of, I think, this legislation. Yes, it didn't have any money attached to it. Yes, it didn't change bad policy. But what it did was it refocused the lens on the person mm -hmm. to say that you exist in Ohio and we see you. Mm-hmm.
Final question. So as assistant minority leader, uh, I'm sure you're engaged with the budget process right now. This yeah, is, sit uh, on, a, on a committee. <laughs> I, mean, um, I, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about what some of your priorities are. Yeah. You know, I know that you're the assistant minority leader, so mm-hmm. that comes with a certain positioning. Yeah. But, you know, h- how are you going into this process? Where is your voice? And what are some of the things if you could you're not going to get everything, right? but hopefully you'll get a few things. And the governor has actually opened a bunch of doors that are really mm-hmm. interesting to people who care a lot about public health right. and equity and things like that. So where are you putting your chips during this process? Yeah, well, first and foremost, I want to say uh, thank you to our uh, finance committee um, ranking member, Bride Sweeney, for her work leading our caucus mm-hmm. on the finance committee. And, you know, as a member of the, of the committee, you know, I also sit as the ranking member of higher ed. And that subcommittee is tasked with looking at higher education funding, whether it was it, where it is the Pell Grant, whether it is uh, OCOG, which is our uh, college opportunity grant, with, wh- whether it is looking at career technical education opportunities and expanding them so that our young people have access to career trades um, you know, looking at the distinction between community, uh, uh, community, uh, private public schools, but also community colleges and, and, and just my lens in this really is, I want to make sure that we have the best budget that meets people where they are. And so we've had last week, we had a number of, uh, uh, committee, uh, um, a number of individuals testify, um, whether it was the budget director, transportation director, or ODOT director, um, you know, all kind of laying out the vision of the governor's as introduced budget. And our job, I feel, is my job is to ask questions about where else and how far can we go, right? So, for example, one of the big questions I asked was related to public transit, right? We know that the first mile and the last mile is incredibly important for individuals who come from low resource communities and not having that connector literally means the difference between whether a person can get to work on time or get to a child care center on time or get to home, right? Mm-hmm. To, to pick up their child from school, right? So, so thinking strategically about those who, at least my experience personally, like what I experienced growing up, making sure that that's reflective in the solutions that are being pushed forth through the budget. Uh, another issue, you know, we talked a lot about workforce and Medicaid. You know, what what folks may not know is we have here in Franklin County, we have um, over $10 million a month will be removed from the SNAP benefits, impacting hundreds of thousands of people, mm-hmm. right? Simply because of we're moving back to pre-pandemic levels. Right. In the last episode, we talked about the end of the public health emergency, yep. the yep. cliff. Yep. And the healthcare yep. cliff that comes with that yep. with Medicaid. Right. And so, you know, talking with Director Marino uh, Corcoran about, you know, who runs Medicaid, like, what are we doing to address those issues? Right. What are we how are we going to make sure that that healthcare cliff does not lead people into the emergency room where they don't have the ability to pay? What did Director Corcoran say? uh, Well, it was it was interesting. She said that there's a plan. There's a process. And many of those individuals, it's about 200,000 plus individuals who are likely to be rolled off. I asked, 
you know, what's the archetype of those individuals? Because I think it's important to kind of get a real sense of who these individuals are mm-hmm. as they're rolling off. Are they men? Are they single mothers? Are they are they individuals who, you know, have make five dollars over the Medicaid eligibility? Like like who are these individuals? And sometimes we don't even know. We don't. Right. And so the, the, the and, but I'll tell you. I feel Medicaid does now, right? They can extrapolate the data and pull down and, and figure out, like, here's the archetype. And so if we have to do a public service campaign about who, here's how we talk to single men, right, who are on the cliff. How, how do we talk to them about making sure that they are connected to other healthcare supports, right? Those That's kind of where my questioning was going. Um, and so I'm hopeful to get back some data from her and we'll love to send it over to, to you. Yeah. But essentially it was really unpacking the budget is I feel is my biggest job. And to, again, make sure that the voice of those who are not in the room are heard. Right. And, and so so my biggest goal is to bring dignity into the, the budget and really into everything that I do. And I, I know that I'm not I'm not alone in that thought. All of my colleagues on the Democratic side believe in dignity of work believe that we can build a healthcare space that 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 reaches all people that we want to make sure that we have business that thrives but not at the expense of anyone mm-hmm. right right um, at, not at expensive neighborhoods we want to address the housing crisis that we know is real and present not just in Franklin County but across our state and growing right and we want to address mental health and addiction issues right mm-hmm. our workforce there are individuals unfortunately who love what they do but they themselves are on public assistance right, who work in mental health and addiction as clinical workers, right, on the ground, social workers, what have you, but yet can't pay their own bills, Mm -hmm. right? And so when we think about the real needs of Ohioans, yes, it is about increasing wages. It's about looking at our system as we look at inflation and saying, are we putting our investments in in the right places so that Ohioans who serve the least of us have everything that they need to thrive. And so those are the questions that I'm asking as a member of finance. But again, all of my colleagues have been have been tremendous in getting to the root of where we need to go as a state to truly make it better. Well, Representative Dontavious Gerald, I hope this is the beginning of our conversations together. I hope so, too. I mean, you, you said something before to the effect of if this is the only thing I get done, I'll be, you know, I'll be pleased by that. You're going to be doing a lot of things right here. So, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thanks for coming by the studios and, and talking a lot. with us. Thank you. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Angela Lynn and Mike Foley, curator of the WCBE podcast experience, worked the recording equipment at the WCBE studios. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCB Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, please be in touch if you have ideas for guests, including yourself if you have a story to tell. I'm serious, as well as topics or ways we can improve the show. Okay, thanks for listening and be well.